I'm Nicole McCants, a psychologist turned business coach for psychotherapists. It was not long ago when I was in solo private practice, seeing way too many clients feeling overwhelmed and burnt out. In 2016, when I became pregnant with twins, I knew I had to scale to a group practice because I couldn't keep working that much. I was sick of hitting the ceiling in my income and knew that the only way to make more money and help more people was expanding my practice. In three short years, I was able to scale it to 55 therapists and multiple seven figures. Once I was able to reach that goal, I had to take it to my peers. I'm here to teach you how to scale your solo practice to a group or take your group practice to the next level. We didn't learn anything about business in graduate school. So I created the Business Savvy Therapist podcast where I share easy to implement, business and marketing strategies so you can help more people, make more money, and have more freedom. Let's dive in. Welcome back to the Business Savvy Therapist. Today, I'm speaking with Patrick Asal, successful group practice owner, but specifically, we're going to be talking about neurodiversity and how your diversity could actually be the thing that helps you lead other people and inspire other people. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Nicole, thanks for so, so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. This is a cool topic, and I'm excited to talk about it with you today. Amazing. Why don't you tell us where you're from? Because we've got listeners from all the places uh, and a bit about maybe the size of your group practice. Yeah. So I am in Asheville, North Carolina, in Western North Carolina in the mountains. I'm originally from upstate New York. I have a group practice here called Resilient Mind Counseling. We have 22 therapists, two psychiatric providers, an office manager, and a scheduler at the moment. We are going on three years of being a group practice this January, and it's been a wild ride. Also, I'm a practice coach, retreat host, podcast host, all the things. All the things. That's a big practice. I had no idea your practice was that big. Yeah, it grew up exponentially. I'm one of those group practice owners who was like, I never wanted to be a group practice owner. And a friend just kept asking me, like, can you please hire me? I said, I teach people all over the country how to do this. I'll do it for free for you. He was like, no, I just want to work for someone. I don't want to deal with all the back end stuff. I don't want to deal with any of the marketing. I'm like, you'll be my guinea pig. We'll see how it goes. And here we are. It went well. So you identify as autistic and also ADHD. Maybe speak a bit about that first. Yeah. So late diagnosed in life, both autistic and ADHD. ADHD always made a much a bunch more sense to me. It's kind of the the pretty stereotypical presentation of like, oh, cis het white male, lots of energy, lots of creativity, lots of impulsivity. Okay, ADHD makes sense in a lot of ways. The autism part was a bit. I wouldn't say shocking, but it was a, it was definitely a different experience to receive that diagnosis. I think it was my own like internalized ableism around the stigma, around the, the label, around my own thoughts about limitations and abilities and, and just my own thoughts about what autism was. So I've had mm-hmm. to do a lot of learning, a lot of deep diving. And I almost experienced it as like a grief relief process, grief of what life could have been like had I known if I had the supports in place up until 35, relief of like, you finally have that lens to see the world 
differently and have a better understanding of why you experience life the way that you do, mm-hmm. which I think we're always searching for as autistic people is like the why the analytical part of the brain is just very curious. Oh, I love that. Okay. Now what prompted this diagnosis? Like you're living your life, you're in your 34, 35, and then what? <laughs> I think it was a lot of like, I think this is so common for autistic people who are diagnosed later in life, but it's just this constant searching for like, why don't I feel like I belong? Like, why do I feel like in every scenario, I'm, I'm just don't learn how to like fit in, blend in, feel comfortable with my surroundings. Why is socializing so, so hard? Why do I feel so uncomfortable in my body all the time? And I just remember going to, um, going to Hawaii for a conference and I was watching the Anthony Bourdain movie that had just come out, bad choice of movies to go watch while on vacation in Hawaii. But I was just paying attention to like the feelings he was describing of like, I'm always on the go. I'm always traveling. I'm always around people who care about me, but I can't access it. I can't take it in. I can't experience it. I don't feel it at all. And I was like, Ooh, that is uh, that is my day to day. So then I just started talking to some friends and they're like, I think you need to go get tested for autism. And I was like, I really don't want that to be the case. I don't want that to be the answer. Lo and behold, of course it was. I told my wife first and she was just like, yeah, I mean, I figured that was the case. Mm. I don't think it, doesn't change who you are, just changes how you kind of see yourself now. So it's It's like a bit of a relief, isn't it? In a way. Totally. Right. Yeah. To be like, oh my God. Okay. That makes sense. Now I'd like to talk to you because here's the thing. You're in a very social role. You've got all these people that you're leading by leading, of course, is all about, it's a social relational experience. So share maybe I'd actually like to start with the strengths. What are some of the strengths that come from your neurodiversity? Yeah, I think the biggest strength is just authenticity. Like, it is impossible for me to be fake. I, <laughs> it's just not in my DNA or my neurology. So I'm very black and white in a lot of ways. I'm very transparent and I'm very authentic. So I always have led with that in mind just leading by example and just being really transparent and upfront about expectations and also acknowledging that I am always open to talking about my own struggle with my staff, with my clients, et cetera. And I think it sets the stage for them to also feel comfortable enough to be themselves in their own skin. We, we employ out of the 22 people, it's probably 95% neurodivergent, whether it's autistic, ADHD, or both. So we have a lot of people who have found their landing spots because I was willing to say, this is who I am. This is the business model. This is who we are. This is how we're going to operate. And I never waver from that. I always try to stay the course. And I think it also means that the relationships that are built internally are real relationships. They don't feel like surface level-ish. And there's a lot of layers to it. But I think a big strength of neurodivergence is just the ability to disclose a little bit about yourself and create more humanness. So that's gone a long way. And then I think another strength is just the brain's ability to think outside of the box all the time. Like you're constantly analyzing and putting different patterns together and thinking of a million ways that things can be done. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't really feel like you're operating in just this one way to do something. So if it doesn't work, let's reevaluate, let's change it, let's change it on the fly. And that allows us to kind of do things a bit differently. And I think it's worked really well for us. It sounds like it. That's amazing. Okay. Now, what about some issue, you know, just what's hard about it? What's hard about it leading such a big team? It's a, like you said, the social demands are tough. So I, you know, a lot of neurodivergent people absorb energy very differently than neurotypical people where it is unbelievably draining. And whether it means in the therapist role, whether it means in the leadership role, 
you're going to experience that energy shift a bit differently. So that means constantly having to regulate your sensory system. That means constantly having to set boundaries around your energy, the things you you know respond to when you can be available to support, things like that. I have to do a lot of internal checks and balances of like, I don't want to come across too short. I don't want to come across like too blunt. So I'm always upfront about that in the interview process too, of like, this is just how I communicate. I'm mm-hmm. always on better to like text messages or emails versus like phone calls or zoom calls. So that's a big component. And then I was just creating a good leadership staff where I don't have to do everything. Talk about that. Like hiring the people to fill the gaps you mean? Yeah. So, you know, we have three, we have three different clinical directors in place right now and an office manager who kind of acts as almost like the administrative director. And it just means that I get to kind of zoom out a bit and do what I'm best at, which is like coaching, mentoring, helping get the best out of each of our staff members and helping connect them to like what really feels in alignment to them as a as a clinician and professional. So I really don't look at myself as a boss a lot of the time. But it's also important for me to just acknowledge limitations. Like autism is a disabling condition as is ADHD. So there are lots of moments of rest that have to come into place. There are lots of moments of hibernation. I travel the world constantly hosting retreats and I have to go into periods of like almost isolation for for weeks at a time. And when you're a boss or a CEO, that makes it challenging. So I just have to really be mindful of how I spend my time, how I intentionally plan my days out, not overdo it because once I hit that threshold, it's it's really challenging, both emotionally and physically too. Yeah. For everyone listening, if if you relate to any of this, just know that you can be successful. And what I'm hearing, it's just finding the right people to like hold you up and also knowing yourself and knowing you. It's almost like you're very strict about your own self-care, boundaries, all the things. All the things. Has to be. Yeah. And I think that takes time to kind of learn about yourself. And I think it's also hard for people to admit limitations sometimes of saying like, I'm so used to doing it all and doing it all, all the time. Sprinkle in this rare throat condition that I developed. And I've had to really reevaluate my days where I used to be able to schedule five or six meetings in a day. And maybe I was exhausted at the end, but I could still do it. Now I really schedule two. That's really my limitation. So I've had to really get comfortable with saying like, this is the new reality for me for the foreseeable future. But that also just means like really relying on your support staff and your support systems that you've put in place too. Yeah. So for me, one of my biggest things was, to be honest, was trusting other people that they would do a good job because this is your reputation. So if to, in order to zoom out, it takes a lot of trust. And tell me a little bit about how you were able to do that. I've been a leader all my life. So like whether it be soccer teams and being the captain, whether it be fraternity president, whether it be at community mental health getting promoted into management, like it just has always come very natural to me. And one way I've found that leadership works the best is to have really transparent conversations with the people who are going to be doing the work for you and just asking them about their goals, asking about their communication styles, what works best for their systems, acknowledging that it can't be a one size fits all approach. And Lots of affirmation, lots of checking in. I know a lot of us, especially if you're listening and you're like, I'm a group practice owner and I have control issues. And so many of us do. I myself am what I would call a recovering perfectionist or someone who struggled with letting go. And just the acknowledgement that like maybe someone's never going to do something as good as you could do because it is your business. It is your reputation. Like nobody's ever going to do something with more passion than you. But does that mean that you have to be the one to do it? Even if that other person is doing it at 80%. That is good enough most of the time. So, because you can't wear all the hats all the time. At first, you probably have to. 
But once you start growing and reinvesting money into the business, that should not be the goal for you to be HR and administration and clinical director and all the things because that's just not humanly possible to do that all well. Without burning out. <laughs> Without burning out. Yeah. I mean, we see so we see we have like a, a mass exodus right now in our profession of people who are like, I can't do this anymore. So it really is important. And I would rather invest in the infrastructure. I think about it like I hate mowing my lawn so much. And I will always pay someone to do it. And if that meant I had to work an extra hour a week to be able to do that, to allow myself to have that time to do something else, that's the way I think of it. And the same for leadership. Like if my if my skills are best suited in a bigger, larger capacity in a macro level, they're not best suited to be involved in the business, in the one-on-one, like the the minutiae every day. Yeah. So I can do much greater good for our culture and our people if I'm out getting more referral sources, connecting with people in the community, doing the things that work for us, opposed to saying like, I have to be involved in the details of everything. And Mm -hmm. it's hard because it's your business and it's your baby, but trying to find those people that you can trust. I have an office manager who admittedly is one of my best friends and I used to supervise him in community mental health. And it was a no brainer when he left that job for him to take this role because he's just so good. But I will travel for two to three weeks at a time for retreats and I won't even check my phone. And I just know he's got it. And there's never been a situation where I've been worried about that. So it does take time. You don't just lock into good administrative support. Sometimes it takes some, some bad hires, unfortunately. Have you been to a masterclass yet? Let's hang out. I would love to teach you exactly how I grew a seven figure group practice that ran without me. So you can finally have the freedom and flexibility that you deserve. If you show up live, I will give you a life-changing guide called three ways to increase your income this month. The link to register is in the show notes. See you there. That's actually a lot of my program, teaching people to lean into personality tests and all the things to find the good people. Because you're right. It sounds like he was amazing. So it was easier for you. That's amazing that you could literally, your business truly does run without you. Three weeks is a lot. Can we actually talk a bit about that? So I'm all about systemizing. Do you have certain systems in place in the business that allows you to trust the people? Because I would always tell myself in some ways, trust systems, not people, because systems are easy, right? Do you have systems in place that allows you to take, you know, go gallivanting uh, all over the globe? Yeah, I think having those systems are are crucial. Like it's got to be foundational really, because then you just have to find the right personality types and plug and play essentially. Right. Yeah, so we have training systems set up we have onboarding systems set up. We have leadership tiered, like structured communication of where do you go when you're having these types of issues. So I never want to be the first person our clinicians reach out to for anything, because if it's clinical, it should go to the clinical lead. If it's administrative, it should go to the administrative lead. So we have a lot of like just flow that happens and we have all that stuff documented and we take people through that in our onboarding. We don't throw people into the deep ends either when they start. We're like, we're going to start slow. We're just going to start very intentionally. I want you to learn our systems, get comfortable, ask all the questions that you can. Because the first couple of weeks in a private practice can feel really wonky for people who are like coming out of community mental health or out of grad school and just so unfamiliar with the free time that comes with private practice too. Mm. Like I should be doing something, right? Like. Right. So just really encouraging us to stay the course with like, this is what works. This is why we stay busy. This is why we have such a good reputation. And just honing in on the things that I think are really important in terms of just staying full, doing good work, getting good referral sources, getting good reputation, and just doing it over and over and over again. We also 
do like 1v1 check-ins quarterly and I always ask all the staff for feedback. We do anonymous okay. feedback. Oh, can we talk about that? Actually, before we get into the check-ins, I'm a huge fan also every 90 days. I love what you said about really taking the training and onboarding seriously. I had a friend the other day complain about her new employee and I was like, okay, you know, she said he's not taking initiative. He's not independent. And I said, what kind of training did you do? Because no one knows how to ride a bike by just putting them on the bike and saying, good luck to you. And she said, oh no, I didn't, I didn't do any, I didn't do any training. (laughs) I'm like, your people. So guys, your people are only as good as your leadership and your training. Write that down. We need to take 100% responsibility. That's a point that needs to be emphasized because that goes with also hiring like administrative support. And here's what I see, and I'm sure you see it too. Oh, I hired a VA. Oh, I hired a, a office manager or a support staff, but they were terrible. I'm like, did you hire them with a job requirement in mind, with job duties and responsibilities, or did you kind of put it on them to just take over the work that you no longer had the capacity to do? Because that's not the same thing. And being able to be really explicitly clear of like, this is what the responsibilities are. This is what I expect you to do. This is how I expect you to do it. And when. And when. Mm -hmm. And how to communicate about it. Like all the things. Instead of just saying like, here's this list. Like take it and run. Nobody operates like that. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you probably have a system. Like I even give my members a system to train because they don't know. And not everyone knows how to train at all. Right. So let's for a moment, jump into check-ins. I love this conversation. Talk about, cause I teach members to meet with them and I give them in my group practice, I gave them a questionnaire and I would have them rate it. And the reason I had them rate it is they don't always want to look their boss in their, in the face and say, you know, I'm not happy, but they're more inclined to circle a nine out of 10 in overwhelm and burnout. Do you know what I mean? But you said you do an anonymous something. Talk about that. Yeah, just having anonymous feedback forms. So because people are more likely to be honest if it's anonymous, right? Like if they have to put their name on it and and hand it to you, the odds of them talking about the things that they're not happy about are pretty slim. Mm-hmm. So we'll do that. And I think a lot of people shy away from it because they're like, I don't want the criticism. Like I don't want the feedback, but then I don't understand why people keep quitting or morale is so low. You have to be willing to be uncomfortable or be comfortable with the uncomfortable and have hard conversations. So we'll do anonymous feedback. We also do one-on-one like quick check-ins with myself in addition to their clinical uh, directors. Because I think it's important for me as the owner to be in touch with my staff and just check in with them. Because I always want to know, like, what are your professional goals for this year? What are your personal goals? What are the things you want to do in the next couple of years? Because I think it would feel quite hypocritical of me to be traveling the world, doing retreats, podcasting, all the things. And I'm being like, you guys can't do any of this stuff. Like, you just have to be a clinician. That feels so restricting to me. And that's just not the environment I want to lead. So a lot of my staff will be like, I want to host a retreat at some point, or I want to start a podcast, or I want to start a coaching program. I'm like, okay, let's like map this out so that this can become a reality. Because I think the more opportunities you give your staff and the more freedom you give them for growth, Mm -hmm. the more loyal they're going to be to you in terms of their job satisfaction. And onboarding is expensive. I don't want to keep hiring people and like turning people over either. Yeah. Okay. So I'm curious about this. Let's say I'm your therapist and you say, hey, what are your goals? And my goal has nothing to do with your group practice. AKA, I want my own podcast. I want to write a book. Would you coach me, support me in that, even though you won't benefit at all? Absolutely. Because it is beneficial in my mind. That's at least my take on it is like, 
the more satisfied you can be with your day-to-day where you don't just look at your schedule every single week and you're like, oh my God, I have to see 25 clients again. I don't have any other reprieve. That's a quick like pathway to burnout. But if you can incorporate things that you're passionate about in addition, I think it allows our brains to just use that creativity, kind of get out of that one role that we see ourselves in. And it allows us to expand as professionals and as people. So I'm all about the mentorship, coaching, guidance, support system. Like That's my leadership style. And it yeah. hasn't bit me in the ass yet. It probably could. No, honestly, it is. Uh, people aren't doing this. I love this conversation. A lot of group practices aren't even asking their goals at all. Yeah. They don't They don't want to know their career goals, their personal goals, because that feels threatening in a way. It's like we're only yeah. going one way and then they don't stay. And I have a sense that your retention rate is really high, like your therapists have been around. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Because they feel that you care. Yeah. And I, again, I think coming back to the neurodivergent pop portion of this conversation, that's just how I'm wired. And I think that's always been the case. So they know that that's genuine. We're coming up on three years of being a group practice. 70% of our staff are coming up on their three-year anniversaries and without any intentions of leaving. And I also let them, like, I tell them upon interview and hire, like, you guys can attend all of my courses, all of my stuff for free. I give them retreat spots for free. So we've had some of our clinicians, like, come to Portugal, come to Spain, come to Ireland. And it's just cool because they're newer to the field and they get to see, like, the field doesn't have to look one way. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of been my goal the entire time is just to showcase that the mental health field doesn't have to just look like one-on-one sessions over and over and over again. And I think you're right. A lot of leaders or bosses shy away from these conversations because it's like, well, this is just a pathway for them to leave. And mm-hmm. that, and it's the same mentality of like um, non-compete clauses and all the things that come into it. And I'm like, I actually think it's the complete opposite. So like if we can inspire our staff to grow and to think bigger, that's going to yield bigger returns for us too. And if they decide to leave, you're just going to replace them with someone who has the same ambition and start all over. So I see it win. I love it. And they're showing up to work fulfilled. They're more motivated. They're doing better work. What I'm hearing, Patrick, is the way that you lead is divergent in the best way. This is amazing. Wow. Thank you for all of this. I'm wondering if people want to contact you. I have a feeling they will. How do they? Okay. So I have two different podcasts. One is called the All Things Private Practice Podcast. My Instagram is All Things Private Practice. You can join the All Things Private Practice Facebook group. That's all about entrepreneurial startup mindset, psychological, imposter syndrome, self-doubt, all the things. I have another podcast called Divergent Conversations where Dr. Megan Neff and I co-host about autistic ADHD life experience, but also with a clinical perspective really cool. And then if you're interested in retreats, we've got, I hate saying this out loud, Ireland, Spain, Greece, and Italy all coming up in 2024, all of which are sold out, but you can join the wait lists. Oh, so good. So exciting. Thank you. Thank you for this fruitful conversation. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Business Savvy Therapist podcast. I hope this episode was helpful. I would be so grateful if you would share this with a peer or colleague that is wanting to help more people make more money and have more freedom. Make sure to subscribe so you do not miss any new episodes and please do leave me a review. It would mean the world to me. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you in the next one.